my number one responsibility as a coach here is to prepare these young men for life. And if their greatest accomplishment is to win a grand slam or win a national title, you know, in my book, they kind of underachieved because there's nothing more important than being a great father and being a great right. husband and a great citizen of society. And that's the number one responsibility that, that I see as being a head coach at the University of Virginia. And it just aligns with our culture. Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Ryan, president of the University of Virginia, and I'd like to welcome all of you to another episode of Inside UVA. This podcast is a chance for me to speak with some of the amazing people at the university and to learn more about what they do and who they are. My hope is that listeners will ultimately have a better understanding of how UVA works and a deeper appreciation of the remarkably talented and dedicated people who make UVA the institution it is. I'm joined today by Coach Andres Pedroso, Director of Tennis and Head Coach of Men's Tennis at the University of Virginia. Andres is a former professional tennis player himself. After graduating from Duke University, he played for four years on the ATP Tennis Tour. Andres previously served as an Associate Head Coach at UVA from 2010 to 2014, before returning to Charlottesville three years later to direct the tennis program and coach the men's team. In his time at UVA, Andres has led the program to three national championship team titles, including back-to-back titles in 2022 and 2023. He has also been twice recognized as a National Tennis Coach of the Year and is a three-time ACC Coach of the Year. Andres is an extraordinary coach and mentor guiding his athletes to athletic, academic, and civic excellence. And today we are fortunate to have him on the podcast. Andres, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. What an honor. So I understand that when you were on the pro tour, you slept in a barn on some hay the night before a competition. Was this your pre-match ritual or was this uh, something you didn't typically do? No, this is this is what the professional tennis tour is like when you don't have much money and you're trying to make ends meet and you show up at an event in the south of France without knowing anybody. <laughs> and the best option is a barn with some hay and uh, and a blanket and you take what you get. So it was it was quite the experience. So you literally slept in a barn, slept in a barn. There was a horse like 10 feet away from me. I woke up in the morning. The owner of the farm offered me some eggs and he, you know, picked up one of the chickens and, and cooked me some eggs. So <laughs> it was uh, it was an experience. So being a professional tennis player was just basically all glamour. Is that right? Absolutely not. But it's an incredible experience. I mean, you get to learn about so many different cultures and you you build a global network that serves you for the rest of your life. And you eat all these different types of foods and you learn the game from the lens of all these different countries and all these coaches from different countries. And that's what's, that's the beauty of tennis is that all these different countries play it a different right. way and they see it a different way and they teach it a different way. So if you love tennis, it's, it's an incredible experience. So I understand your family has roots in Cuba and you were bought, brought up in a Cuban American um, community in Miami. Um, First, how did your family land in Florida and what was your childhood like? So my parents left when they were really young. My mother was 12 months old or nine months old, actually, when when she arrived in, in New York City from Cuba with my grandmother. My grandfather worked for an American sugar company and he was able to get them out earlier than he left. And he he found a way to get out of the island on a flight. 
And then he started working in New York City for that same American sugar company. And on my father's side, we had a bank in Cuba. And once Fidel Castro took over in the start of 1959, my grandfather just watched how how things evolved in Havana. And in the summer of 1960, he actually sent my grandmother and my father and his siblings to South Florida uh, as a precaution. Right. Because things were things were getting very complicated. Castro was compensating businesses and property and indoctrinating, you know, students in school. And the communist regime was up and running. And they ended up staying in South Florida and never coming back. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather was able to escape on a commercial flight hidden in the bathroom. And so wow. both families left everything in Cuba and started over. And so what was that like for them and then for you? Oh, well, you know, starting from scratch is is always uncomfortable. And, yeah. But I think the Cuban-American people have a reputation of just being really hardworking and right. and relentless and resilient. You know, I, I think it's just many years of, of Cubans approaching their transition like that. And, and as a Cuban-American young boy, you grow up dreaming of going back to Cuba and hearing yeah. from the older generations about what a paradise it was and the beaches and the architecture. And thankfully, my my father was able to take my brothers and I and, and our wives to Cuba in the summer mm. of 2010, when President Obama, there was a six month window where I right. think you could return. And we did that. And it was an incredible experience. I mean, it, the island is stuck in time. And we visited the East Coast and the West Coast, uh, because my grandmother on my father's side, had a, a a farm, a plantation in in a in a city named Olguin on the east coast of Cuba, and then we also went to Havana to see his home there. And so it was that must have been it an incredible was, experience. It was eye opening. It was yeah. incredible. And do you still have family there? Not really. Yeah. Uh, we have a few distant cousins, but not really. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of our family was able to get out early right. in the early 1960s. And so, at what point in your childhood did you start playing tennis? I started when I was nine. Uh, so by today's standards, that's a pretty late start. Yeah. I was actually doing karate before that. And and I think the the sensei hit me with the bamboo stick too hard one time, and I decided <laughs> to get rid of the, the karate outfit and started playing tennis. And but, what inspired you to pick it up? Was anyone in your family a tennis player, or did you have friends who played? My grandfather was a huge tennis player. He was a swimmer okay. in Cuba on my mother's side. And, and I watched him. We, he would come to Miami Beach and vacation there a little bit. And, and I would watch him play tennis there. And I think that's what caught my eye is watching him play. And, and he was a fanatic of the sport. And he passed away last year. But oh, I'm sorry to hear that. He came to all my matches, all my tournaments from junior tennis, high school tennis, college tennis, pro tennis. and. He was an incredible impact on my life. And how long did it take for you or others to recognize that you had real talent? Um, I, I don't think anyone would have described me as very talented. I think they would have described me more as extremely hardworking and passionate. And uh, I've said this before, I've called myself a tennis nerd many times. Hmm. Uh, I'm constantly reading it, watching it, talking right. it. And I've been like that since I was a little kid. I just, I I learned to play on the wall and I would just spend hours and hours Mm. on the wall. And that's something that I I think it's, it's a lost art in our sport is having kids grow up on a wall and just imagining like they're playing their, their idols and, 
And so that's how I learned. Um, so it's been a passion of mine since I was nine. And you went on to play varsity tennis at Duke. I have to pause to just ask you, <laughs> why Duke? <laughs> you had to bring that up. Um, well, I made the decision to go to Duke just based on two simple uh, realities. And number one, the head coach was a top, a former top 20 player in the world. And number two, it was an amazing academic institution. And yeah. so it was a best of both worlds scenario. And, and so I, I, I went on my visit. I had four more to go to. I committed on the visit and canceled the rest. Yeah. And did you go in to college thinking that you would like to play professionally? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was something that drove me to do extra. And, you know, something that I tell my players now on our team is that if you only do what we ask you to do and you're not doing things on your own and, you know, watching tennis and, and going on runs, then, you know, just have to realize that there are players all over the world, your same age, training five, six hours a day and dedicating right. their lives to the sport. So it's uh, it definitely drove me to do the extra work. And I gather that the professional tour is intensely competitive um, and you were a part of it for four years. What ultimately made you decide to stop? Well, I ran out of money. Okay. <laughs> so that was the, that was the, the, the biggest reason. Um, but you know, I, I also, I had other interests and, and I, and I come from a, a family where a lot of people worked in finance Yeah. and, and I just felt like it was time to, to put my education to, to good use and, and go into a world that, that, that I didn't know much about, which was New York city, wall street, but go in there and, and do the best I can. And I actually got an interview at Bear Stearns on their equity trading floor through a relationship in tennis. And I didn't know anything. I didn't know what a dividend was or a PE ratio or anything like that. But luckily, I had a boss and James McKendry, who was a tight end for Georgia Tech's national championship football hmm. team. And he believes in athletes and student athletes specifically. And so he said, listen, I know, I know you're a competitor. I know you work hard and you know how to budget your time. So you're going to learn the business and, and you'll do great. And he gave me a chance. And, and it was an amazing experience. And so was that something you planned? Did you have coaching in mind when you started that? Or did you think that that was going to be your career? And at a certain point, you thought, you know what, I would really love to coach. So when I was playing tennis, when I was playing professionally, I kind of knew deep down that I was always going to be a coach. Oh, really? I, I just, I just kind of knew it, but I knew I could always go back to that. Yeah. And, and my parents always said, you can always be a coach. Why don't you go try this? And so that's why I tried Wall Street. And, you know, after 14 months, 15 months that I was on Wall Street, I just realized that, you know, it wasn't for me and my passion for tennis was just too, too big. And, and so I decided to, to transition out of it. And did you go directly to coaching from there then? No, I actually, I actually interviewed to be a sports agent in tennis with a few oh, okay. companies. And, um, and I interviewed with, with a former UVA law grad, Donald Dell. Who I, right. I believe who I believe still teaches a class at the law school. He does. And for for listeners who don't know him, maybe you could describe his stature in the in the world of sports agents. So Donald Dell is one of the most prominent sports agents in the history of the of the business. And uh, from Michael Jordan to James Worthy to Ralph Sampson 
Arthur Ashe, Stan Smith, Yannick Noah. He represented some of the best athletes in the in the history of 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 many sports. And so he had a company that he ran named ProServe. And and I I was lucky enough to interview, go through the interview process there. And I just remember the reason why I became a coach was because in the last interview that I had with with Donald Dell, we sat in his office in Washington, D.C. And he said to me, Andres, I'm about to offer you this job. But before I offer you the job, I need you to think about something. When you're at a U.S. Open final, do you want to be the one in the tennis clothes worrying about the match? Or do you want to be the one in the suit worrying about the deals for the player that's playing? And it hit me like a ton of bricks right there. And I said, you know what? I actually want to be the guy in the tennis clothes. Yeah. And he said, okay, well, don't take this job. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's an amazing story. So tell me what it's like to break into coaching. I imagine that's not so easy. Definitely. It just because you're a decent tennis player doesn't mean you're going to be a great coach. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's all about the relationship with the player. And it's very true what they say that they're, they don't care what you know unless they know that you care or yeah. until they know that you care. And and that's that's number one. I mean, that's the foundation of coaching is just getting people to trust you and then keeping it simple and being able to relate that information to different personalities and different backgrounds and different game styles and and levels of athleticism. And so coaching is a is it's a it's a completely different deal than playing. And anyone that wants to be a coach needs to walk into it with that type of humility because it's really hard. And did you have any mentors or any coaches that you especially admired? So again, you don't see this nowadays too often, but I had coaches, I had the same coach from age nine to 18. And then oh, okay. I had a coach that I started working with at the end of my high school career, and I stayed with him throughout my pro career. And, and both of these coaches, Robert Gomez in Miami and Fernando Mineto in Naples, Florida, they built the relationship with me. They gained my trust. They found ways to connect with me and, and they used the right words, the, the right tone and the right timing to, to deliver information in a way that would, that would be impactful to me. Right. And, and so that was, that's where I kind of unconsciously learned how to coach just by looking back to how they, they managed me as a player. They were two invaluable influences in my life. So you've had incredible success here at UVA, um, both with individual players, but also at the team level. And you've talked a little bit about this, but can you talk a little bit more about your philosophy as a coach? What are your goals for your players and the team? And, And what do you do to ensure that you and your players meet those goals? So my number one responsibility as a coach here is to prepare these young men for life. And and I can tell you right now that Coach Sarah O'Leary on the women's side has the same philosophy. And so if you're preparing someone for life, there's nothing more important than their mental health and their peace of mind and their happiness off the court. And then their academics. Uh, We have very good players on our team, but I tell the guys up front, listen, there's a there's a 99.9% chance that you're going to need to get a job when you're done playing tennis. So you need right. to make sure that you invest in your education and, and you don't just embrace the tennis experience here. You'd be missing out on so much if you didn't embrace all aspects of the UVA experience. And also making it clear for these student athletes that they're playing tennis not to win grand slams. They're playing tennis again to prepare themselves for life. And if their greatest accomplishment is to win a grand slam or win a national title, 
you know, in my book, they kind of underachieved because there's nothing more important than being a great father and being a great right. husband and a great citizen of society and, and being able to give back. And, and so that's the number one responsibility that, that I see as being a head coach at the University of Virginia. And it just aligns with our culture. I right. mean, if you look at our, our network of alums, they're just fanatical about giving back and, and helping students and student athletes get jobs and interviews. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think this place is so magical because of the community around it. Right. Do you have anything that resembles an off season? Uh, <laughs> this job is 24 seven. It is the off season is the summertime and, and the summertime is, is creating the environment for the team that's coming in at the end of August. And that's with scheduling for practices, competition, that is for facilities as well. And also just creating a philosophy amongst your coaching staff with how you want to approach each individual player. And tennis is a team sport, but it's also an individual sport. And right. so you've got to approach each, each uh, young man and woman in a different way because they're just different personalities and, and different game styles. And so that's how you have to do it. And how much time do you spend recruiting and how important is that to the team's ultimate success? It's, it's huge. Choosing wisely is, it's one of the top priorities, but honestly, I'd be lying if I said I spent a tremendous amount recruiting. I'm lucky enough to be at a wonderful place that attracts incredible student athletes mm -hmm. and prospects. I mean, you walk someone on the lawn and in front of the rotunda and it's a fantasy world. It's just, it's, it's something that most people don't get to see too often. And then you take them to the Boris head and you show them our incredible facility indoor and outdoor. Right. I have the luxury of working at a resort every day and, and we have a winning tradition over, you know, many years. And that's thanks to the work of my predecessor and the former players that came before this team that we have now and, and all the efforts that, that they've made to put us in, put us at the top of college tennis. So college sports has changed quite a bit just the last five years. If you think about the Austin decision, the transfer portal, and uh, the changes with respect to name, image, and likeness, um, how are you feeling about the state of college athletics today? And how are these changes um, affecting you and the tennis team? Collegiate athletics is it's an arms race that just keeps intensifying with each year. Uh, with NIL and, and Alston and paying for more coaches. And, and it's just a, a full scholarship is, is not enough to compete nowadays as a top collegiate athletic team. Right. And so it's, it's made it even more of a business. It's no, you can't just walk into this job and think that all you have to do is coach and recruit. You need right. to promote, you need to market, you need to fundraise, you need to network. And, and that's what it takes to provide the types of resources that the best players in the world are, are looking for if they're going to go to college rather than turning pro. So it's made your job more challenging, I would expect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but again, luckily, we have an incredible community of support that right. gives us a chance to compete. And if it's not for their investing, the, if, if it's not for them investing their hard-earned money and their time and their effort and keeping an open mind to resources like like NIL for for UVA athletics then then we wouldn't have a chance but they are and so we're all the coaches here are so grateful let me ask you one last question and it's uh the challenge and the blessing of coaching a team that has won back-to-back -back national titles how do you think about this spring and how do you keep your 
your players motivated without putting too much pressure on them? Well, I, I keep emphasizing to them that we didn't see the last two national championships coming. Mm. And, and if you look at the whole body of work, I'll be honest with you, we weren't the best team in the country the last two years, but we were the best team in the country in May. Mm. And we got off to slow starts in January and February when we were playing indoors, but these guys handled it so well. And they didn't just fine tune themselves and chipped away at themselves, but they also chipped away at our coaches, including me. Uh, if there's something that I've learned in this job is that if, is there's, if there's something wrong with me, there's going to be something wrong with the team. Mm. And so this job has been a blessing because it's, it's forced me to improve if I'm going to provide these guys with the type of experience that I talk to them about during the recruiting process. So the, our biggest weapon is our culture and how close these guys are and the standards that they've set and, and how coachable and open-minded they are. And they're willing to do the dirty work and be right. gritty. And I think one thing we learned losing in two finals in a row in 2011 and 12 is that the closest team in that stage of the tournament is going to give themselves the best chance to win. And right. so we, we, we really, we have a lot of team dinners. We have a yeah. lot of talks together. And so we do everything we can to get as close as possible so that when we get to that point, everyone's united and on, and on the same page. Well, coach, your players are incredibly fortunate to have you um, as is all of UVA. Um, thanks for everything that you do. And thanks again for spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it and enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Inside UVA is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the Office of the President at the University of Virginia. Inside UVA is produced by Jaden Evans, Ariane Ballou, Mary Gardner-McGee, and Matt Weber. Special thanks to Maria Jones and McGregor McCants. Our music is turning to you from Blue Dot Sessions. You can listen and subscribe to Inside UVA on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about the life of the university.